What was so unique um, about Hamilton's character that he was able to come to the United States from the islands as an orphan and become what he became? How did he do that? It is a terrific question, and his story beggars the imagination. I don't know that I could come up with a sufficient answer for you because anyone else dealt his hand in life would not have risen to the meteoric heights that he did. Here is someone whose father abandons him, whose mother passes away when he's an adolescent, who moves in with a cousin and then that cousin kills himself, who is on a Caribbean island that is devastated by a catastrophic hurricane, who has had every disadvantage in life, and yet he manages to become the visionary of America's financial future and one of the most influential figures in the history of the American Republic. Hamilton was always tight-lipped about his Caribbean origin, not just a Jewish background, the whole of his West Indian upbringing. And his silence about his youth obscured in the eyes of his contemporaries just how extraordinary his rise from obscurity to eminence truly was. And recovering the harrowing depths of Hamilton's history throws into high relief the unlikelihood that he would ultimately become one of the most iconic figures in the founding of the Republic. If we had to attribute it to some quality, one would certainly have to be his almost preternatural intellectual ability. He was a genius by any objective measure of the word. And Hamilton also had an intestinal fortitude, an ability to just walk through walls, an ability to face long odds and unrelenting opposition and be even more unrelenting in his pursuit of his will. Uh, and so these combinations combined created a, a formidable presence that was a, a source of um, great uh, frustration to his adversaries, uh, but a, great, uh, a source of great inspiration to his admirers. One characterized Hamilton's political, economic, social principles and say these are, quote unquote, Jewish principles. It's a really interesting question. Hamilton is a person with a highly versatile mind and the influences on him were many. And if on the one hand, it would be a mistake to suggest that Judaic ideas are the organizing principle of all of Hamilton's thought, so too would it be an error to deny the notion that there's any Judaic influence on Hamilton. This is an era when Jews are without a homeland of their own. They are tradesmen in between societies. They have to cultivate skills in finance and in languages by virtue of their marginality. And this is true of Hamilton. He too 
cultivates linguistic and commercial acumen because of his marginality. He too is itinerant. He too is drawn to urban and commercial life in the same way that Jews are. And so in so many respects, Hamilton's outlook on the world as a modernizer, as someone who sees the future of the country, not in agrarian plantations, but rather in the urban marketplace is in so many respects, a Judaic outlook on the future. George Washington visits the tourist synagogue and writes his historic letter to the Jewish community. Other founding fathers, perhaps Benjamin Franklin's writings are are studied uh, by Jews for practical advice and living. Where was Hamilton's relationship with the small Jewish community in America different from other founding fathers? Most of the founding fathers have at best a mixed relationship with Jews and with Judaism. They may cultivate a relationship with a Jew on one hand and then malign Jews on the other. They may express sympathy for the history of persecution in one breath and then denigrate the faith of Judaism in the next. Hamilton stands out among the founders because his relationship with Jews and their faith was unmitigated by prejudice. Hamilton never suggests that there should be an en masse conversion of Jews to Christianity, as do some other founders. He never engages in the common tropes about supposedly deceptive Jewish traders and merchants who are bilking ordinary Christians the way so many other founders do. One caveat is that George Washington was a leader of profound pluralism in his approach to the religious life of America. He wanted the United States to be a place where, to quote uh, his line in the Newport letter, everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make them afraid, which is language he takes from the book of Micah. George Washington rivals then Hamilton in his absence of prejudice towards Jews, but Washington never cultivates the personal ties to the Jewish community that Hamilton does, whether that's through Hamilton's law practice, whether that's through Hamilton's role as a financier, whether that's uh, through Hamilton's position as an influential alumnus of his alma mater, Columbia, where he helps institute reforms that are friendly to Jews. Hamilton stands alone when we look at both the depth of his ties to the Jewish community and the absence of any kinds of prejudicial remark that would otherwise mar his record and indeed does mar the record of so many of his contemporaries. Hamilton's views on slavery, where did he stand on slavery? Hamilton, like so many people at the time, has a mixed relationship with slavery. Almost anyone participating in this society was implicated in some way in slavery. In the Caribbean, as a teenager, he works for an import-export firm that at least once a year is engaged in the traffic of slaves. Hamilton gets to New York, which has the largest slave population of any urban area 
in the northern colonies uh, termed states. And Hamilton, we know, rents out slave labor. There's some circumstantial evidence that he may have even owned a slave later in his life, although that's highly controversial and there's not consensus on that. At the same time that Hamilton is implicated in the institution, uh, at the very least by marrying into a prosperous slave-owning family, the Schuyler family, Hamilton is also arguably the most pronounced abolitionist of any of the founders. He's one of the founding members of the New York Manumission Society. And in fact, it may surprise viewers to learn that at that time, it was not uncommon to both be an abolitionist and own slaves. There is a hypocrisy around slavery and freedom that is built into America's DNA, that was present in the American Republic since its very founding. And Hamilton, no less than other founders, inhabits that contradiction. A little bit about um, Hamilton's personality. Uh, an engaging dinner guest, if you would have him over for, uh, for a meal. Hamilton was beloved by his admirers and hated by his detractors. His admirers found him charming and witty and entertaining um, with a, a depth of intellect uh, rivaled by very few in his age. And his detractors saw him as someone who was too ready to sacrifice civility in the name of defending himself or his reputation. And uh, it's one of the great tragedies uh, of Hamilton's life that when you are that kind of outspoken personality and you do say what's on your mind and people who agree with you are gonna love that and people who don't are gonna hate it, in a world where honor killing is still an accepted practice in many quarters, at some point, uh, that propensity to speak his mind in an unvarnished way was going to catch up to him. And while it's tragic that he dies, unlike the other founders, so much younger than the rest of them, because he's felled by Aaron Burr's bullet in this fatal, unfortunate duel, in many ways, it's a miracle he even lived that long because he was nearly in many other duels earlier in his life. I think Hamilton, even in a subconscious way, had a, a sort of death wish. And in the same proportion that Aaron Burr hated him, uh, his admirers loved him and mourned his passing. Because you raised it with, with the duel. What is your take on the duel, the, 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 the hypothesis that he never intended to get a good shot in and he was just a target? Is, is that really feasible in a duel like that? I believe that Hamilton was telling the truth when he said that he was going to throw away his shot, which is a line that the, the musical spins into a double entendre. Hamilton says before the duel that he is not going to fire at Bull. He has to, at Burr, he has to partake in the duel in order to defend his honor, but he doesn't want to take Burr's life. And the evidence that Hamilton was telling the truth is that his bullet doesn't go anywhere near Burr. It goes 12 feet away from Burr. So one of two possibilities is true, and they both lean in Hamilton's favor. The first possibility is that Hamilton fires his shot first, but he fired high 
above Burr's head. The second possibility is that Hamilton fires second and his hand pulls the trigger just as a reflexive muscle spasm as his body absorbs Burr's bullet. Either way, Hamilton did not shoot with an intent to kill. Who was um, Gershom Sayex and what was Hamilton's relationship with him? Gershom Satius was the Hazan, effectively the de facto rabbi of Shirith Israel, the first congregation in New York City, and and really in North America. It's still functioning to, to this day. I know the rabbi there quite well, actually. Rabbi Mayor, right? That's right, yeah. So, Hamilton comes to know Gershom Satius. He is instrumental in changing the charter at his alma mater, Columbia, in New York City, to be friendly to Jews. And one of the reforms that Hamilton helps institute is that they place the first Jew on the board of an American college. And that Jew was Gershom Satius. Now, there had been higher education in North America since the founding of Harvard in the 1630s. And yet for the first time, in 150 years, a Jew would finally sit on the board of an American college. And in fact, there wouldn't be another Jew on the board of Columbia for almost another 150 years. And it's a name many of your viewers will probably know, Benjamin Cardozo, who was best known as the second Jew to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, also the second Jew to sit on the Columbia board, and in fact, a descendant of Gershom Statius. Did you enjoy the hit musical Hamilton? And did it accurately portray Alexander? I really enjoyed the musical. I was doing research in New York for book when the musical came out. And it was still in previews. It hadn't had its Broadway premiere yet. And I thought I should go see this because it sounds pretty gimmicky. It's probably going to shut down after two weeks. This will be my only chance to see a musical on Alexander Hamilton. Of course, I was blown away. and becoming this phenom that generated tremendous public interest in Hamilton. And so I'm deeply indebted, along with every other Hamilton scholar, to Lin-Manuel Miranda for creating this extraordinary worldwide fascination in someone who was really, in many ways, a forgotten historical figure before the musical debuted. The musical, by taking Hamilton's life, condensing it into a couple hours and setting it to a hip-hop soundtrack, has its inaccuracies. But I think that it would be ill-advised for historians to engage in tisk-tisking and hold a musical to the same standard as you would a scholarly text. I think that artists like Lin-Manuel Miranda should exercise their artistic license to help reimagine these kinds of stories for a new age. And in fact, I would hasten to add that Miranda, in many respects, is more accurate than many Hamilton biographers in this sense. Most Hamilton biographers give short shrift to his Caribbean upbringing. They are focused on the extraordinary events of his American adulthood. But Miranda, in his opening number, is centrally concerned with Hamilton's Caribbean origins. And throughout the musical, if you listen to the lyrics carefully, 
he's consistently referring back to those Caribbean origins and musing about how Hamilton's childhood may be informing his approach to his adulthood. And that is exactly the kind of work that's required of biographers. And for the Hamilton scholarship that's out there, and many of that is excellent, I think the great blind spot is this attention to Hamilton's youth and the formative influence it has on all that comes afterwards. And so I give Miranda credit, even as he takes, takes artistic liberties in many respects, the spirit of the musical has an accuracy to it that I think historians can learn from. How, how do you rank um, Hamilton among the founding fathers? Well, I think he's number one. Uh, I, I'm biased. And Why? <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I think that he is the the number one founder because Hamilton in a way that's not true of any other founder was the visionary of the American future. Hamilton as treasury secretary sets into motion a financial system that is so forward thinking most of his contemporaries couldn't begin to grasp his prescience. We often make a mistake when we think about history. We assume that historical figures knew how their history would play out. That when the delegates convene at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, that they're aware that they're drafting a constitution that will endure in perpetuity. But the truth is that their knowledge of their future was as impoverished as our own. And in 1787, Americans had very good reason to believe that the country's audacious experiment in self-government would die in its infancy. Hamilton's financial system creates the foundational financial infrastructure on which the Republic has any chance of enduring. Without Hamilton's financial reforms, there is very good cause to believe that the American Republic would implode in on itself in its early years. I don't think that we would have the United States today, but for Hamilton and his bold vision of America's future.